So as we begin tonight, we're going to talk about the five solas of the Reformation. Now, I have I wanted to make sure I was truly committed to this to this sermon. The five solas of the Reformation, maybe you've seen them on the doors as you've come in. I wanted to be truly committed to this, so I went out and did this this week. I feel like I won't ever forget them, and, uh, you know, there's no way, you know, people who know me really well will not be able to forget them. No, I really I didn't do that. There's no way. Just wanted to see if I got, could get your attention. Okay. Well, we want to, uh, if you have your uh, study guide, there is as much space as we could possibly give you because there is a lot of information and I hope challenges tonight. A, a friend of Pastor Steve and I's uh, last week put on Facebook that he was teaching on the five solas too and that he was going to do it in five weeks. And I told him to stop posting on Facebook because we, I was going to do it in one sermon. Now, I don't know if that means I'm just a better pastor than he is or I'm crazy. But we are going to look at these. So here's where we're going to start tonight. We're going to start in Geneva, Switzerland. There is a park adjacent to the University of Geneva. It's close to the church where John Calvin preached and taught daily. And the park contains a lasting memorial to the 16th century Reformation. The central feature of this park is a magnificent wall. It's adorned with statues of John Calvin, John Knox, Zwingli, Beza, and others. And chiseled into the stone are the Latin words post tenenbras lux, which means after darkness, light. These words, I think, capture the driving force of the Reformation. The darkness of a time when the truth of the gospel had been eclipsed by corruption and false teaching. And yet, the Reformation in reality, took place over the course of nearly 200 years. And that was fueled by probably the most highly contested doctrinal dispute in history, brought about, in its, as it went forward, it brought about long-term consequences that continue to impact the spread of the gospel to the nations today. Well, what was the main issue of the Reformation? And I would say it in one word, and that's really what we're going to look at tonight, the word justification. This doctrine of the work of God, of what makes an individual right before God. Martin Luther, who we have talked about the last couple of weeks and who Pastor Jay shared a lot about his life two weeks ago, was a man at the center of this dispute, and he called justification the article upon which the church stands or fails. I was reading the other day that coming up on August the 21st, there is going to be a total solar eclipse. An eclipse of the sun, though, I just want to let you know, the sun, it doesn't, isn't destroyed, okay? An eclipse of the sun doesn't destroy the sun. It obscures it. It brings darkness where there was light. The reformers sought to remove an eclipse of truth 
so that the gospel's light could once again shine in full brilliance and be seen with clarity. Speaking of clarity, let me clarify up front that the issues of those times, 500 years ago, are not entirely the issues of theological disagreement today. Other reforming work has taken place in the 500 years since the Reformation. Some issues and doctrinal disagreements, though, still do exist. And next weekend, I'll be addressing differences, similarities, and lessons that we can learn between evangelical doctrine and that of the Catholic Church. So that's next week. But for now, this weekend, we want to dig into this important doctrine these essential beliefs of justification by considering what are called the five solas. Sola is a Latin term that means only or alone. So literally, these are the five onlys or the five alones. And these emerge from the Reformation as a way of summarizing the Reformers' basic theological principles. Now, in the spirit of full disclosure, I'll be looking at what we as a church believe to be truth. Looking, we're going to look at some of the basic opposing beliefs and then some warnings on how we can get off track. Make sense? Also, keep in mind that there is going to be limited space and time here to do a thorough and in-depth explanation of these amazing truths. So today, I'll do my best to help us see the critical high points. And hopefully, in about 45 minutes, these five points will be clear to you. I would say this, that to continue learning, I would encourage you to consider registering for a class that uh, Pat mentioned a couple minutes ago. It's coming up in November. It's called Essential Teachings of the Christian Faith. And that class, over the course of three six-week sessions, is going to take ample time Spend ample time in, that, uh, in there looking at this and other important topics. So determine today that you'll invest in your learning, and that's a great way to do it. So let's dive in, see what we can discover, what we can learn, what we can apply today. Here's how we're going to do this. We're going to consider three aspects of each of these solas. We're going to look at this specific truth, the specific truth of that sola. So we see them, we're going to look at the main doctrine being brought to light both in the Reformation and here at New Life. I'd have us consider John 8, 31 and 32 as we look at the truth. It says this, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and we can all say it together probably, and the truth will set you free. So we want to know the truth because the truth sets us free. Then we're going to look at each one and look at well, the truth is opposed to what? We're going to take a quick look at opposing doctrines. In some cases, just one, when there might be multiple ones. Consider, as we look at that, Galatians 5, beginning in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. So the Apostle Paul is telling the Galatians, who, who is causing you to get away from the truth? Somebody is convincing you of something. Somebody is persuading you differently. Well, you get a little bit of wrong in there, and it's going to start to affect everything else. 
And he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view than what I've taught you. And then we're going to look at the idea of what we need to be on guard for. So I've used this phrase, be on guard lest you blank. Some personal application of the sola. 2 Peter 3, 17 says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Be on guard. Watch out because this can, these doctrines, if seen incorrectly, if interpreted wrongly, can take you places that you couldn't have imagined. So be on guard. So let's look at the first one. Sola Scriptura, okay? And I'm using all the Latin I know tonight, okay, in, in one whole sermon. Sola Scriptura, it means, well, first of all, what's sola mean? We already talked about this. What's it mean? Alone, right? So, Scripture alone. Scripture alone. The Bible alone is our highest and final authority. So, let's look at the truth. Well, this is a central belief of the Reformation. The issue is that the Bible is the ultimate authority. The ultimate authority. We stand fully with Jesus on this matter of truth. Truth is knowable. What did he say? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We see in Scripture the term, it is written. It is found 555 times in Scripture. The authority of Scripture comes from its divine authorship. God says, it is written, I have written this to you. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great pastor teachers of the 20th century, said this about the Bible. This volume is the writing of the living God. Each letter was penned with an almighty finger. Each word in it dropped from the everlasting lips. Each sentence was dictated by the Holy Spirit. We must settle in our minds that the Word of God must certainly be true, absolutely infallible, and beyond all question. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In older translations, the Word is inspired, but the NIV gives us the one, this wonderful literal meaning from the original in the Greek. It is God-breathed. And what that means, it is the very breath of God. Think about it this way. God has breathed himself into Scripture. Literally, the writings and the text, he has breathed himself into it. And then he enlivens the Scripture so that he breathes out of it and through it. Thus the words in 2 Timothy. Now let me be clear. The Bible does not just contain the Word of God. It is the authoritative and inerrant, or without error, Word of God. As opposed to what, you might say. And I'm glad you asked, because that's the next point. Well, as opposed to a pope, a pastor, a church, the traditions of any church, any council of a church, or even personal interpretations or subjective feelings. It is to be Scripture only. Now, other sources of authority may have an important role to play. 
I'm not talking about teaching and training in the Scripture. God has established such authorities as church elders and mentors and teachers and parents for the purpose of training up in truth, right? But Scripture alone is ultimate. It is the final and ultimate authority. When other authorities make statements that depart from clear scriptural truth, they are to be judged by the Bible and rejected. Well, if that's the opposition, what do we need to be on guard for? Well, I'm going to talk about three really very diverse things. The first thing I'd encourage you to make sure you watch out for, that you guard against, is wanting more. And what I mean by that is this. It's easy to fall into a trap where you decide that the scriptures are just not enough for you. Maybe you'd say, yes, the Bible is important, but oh, what a treasure it would be if I could experience God really speaking to me. If I could only hear from the sure and infallible voice of God. Well, that sounds amazing, right? Can you imagine God speaking directly to you personally? You say, well, wait a minute, doesn't that happen? Yes. And there are, time, there are times when God does this, but here's what's amazing. Every single one of us can hear from God today. Right at this very moment, God still speaks. And he has a word for us today. Not just today, but even every day. It is a sure, steady, and unerring word. And it is called the Scriptures. Now, if you have a copy on paper or electronic, hold it up. Hold it up. Keep it up. And as you hold it up, I want you to listen to this from 2 Peter 1.19. Speaking of the Scriptures, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, something more sure, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This statement is after Peter has shared the story of Jesus' baptism. Now, you remember what happens at Jesus' baptism? God the Father speaks from heaven with an audible voice that everybody heard. Well, that's quite a story, right? I've been in, I can tell you how many church services I've been in that that has happened. Where God has spoken in an audible voice and we could all hear it. That many. That is something, right? That is awesome. Peter shares this story. But better than that, here's what Peter says in this verse. We have it too. We have the booming voice of God right here. And as Peter said, we would do well to pay attention to it. Well, be on guard lest you kind of want more. Here's another thing you need to, we need to be on guard with. There's, this is an opposite of this. It happens when we take God's holy word for granted. We don't make time for it. It's not at the very core of our life as a believer. How can we lay it aside through the week? How can we hear it only on the weekend? 
How could we not care about this perfect and sure word of the Most High God? The booming voice of God in our lives. Something else to watch out for in this, okay, this may take you aback a little bit, but follow with me. Maybe you uh, would say, well, I learn only from the Bible. I am so committed to sola scriptura, I learn only from the Bible. I don't learn from teachers or pastors. I don't waste my time in a small group because then I would have to listen to people who see things in a different way than I do. So I interpret it for myself. This is not the point of this sola. God all, uh, always allows us to learn through other means beyond our own thoughts and our own interpretations. You see, these solas came in the midst of the understanding that these would happen in community, in the community of a church. Christ established the church for the very purpose of helping us stay focused on Scripture alone. The church and its leaders, as well as ancient teachings and creeds and confessions of faith, and even the traditions of a church, do help us learn and know the Bible. But we can't dismiss them out of hand. Rather, I think we have to see them as a valuable means by which God allows us to know the Scriptures. Sola Scriptura does not reject any other influence it places them in proper perspective. The Bible is our ultimate authority. Sola Scriptura. The second sola, sola fide. Faith, what's the word? Alone. Yeah, same word. Faith alone. We are justified through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Ephesians 2. 8 through 10 says this. Actually, it's not what I want to say. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us much about what we bring with us to redemption. It tells us what we bring to redemption. Here it is. Ready? Nothing. We don't bring anything with us. Any good works that we perform are not the grounds for our status before God. We bring nothing to the table. These works... The works that we do result from us having been chosen and gifted with salvation. Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your doing. It is a gift of God. Now often this verse is seen to say that grace is the only thing that is a gift to us from God. Right? By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. And we say, well, grace is the gift of God. But the structure of the passage clearly shows us that faith is a gift too. Notice, this is not your own doing. The grammar in this verse, if we went back and dug in and spent 40 minutes digging into the Greek grammar, we would see that the phrase, this is not your own doing, refers back to the entire complex of things that Paul mentions in the verse. Salvation, grace, and faith. 
It is true that we are the ones who put our faith in Christ, but God gives us this faith as a gift and guarantees it unto salvation. Salvation is a gift, not of our own doing. Grace is a gift, not of our own doing. Faith is a gift, not of our own doing. If the Holy Spirit changes our hearts, we will not refuse the call to trust in Christ. Grace, which we'll discuss further in a few minutes, by definition, excludes the slightest hint that other efforts contribute to our righteous standing before the most holy and perfect creator. Even the contribution of our own faith. How does this play out? And I feel so good that Tim Keller said, it's okay to get off your notes. If you listen to the video earlier. Okay. How does this play out? I think it plays on this. All you have to do See anything wrong already? All you have to do is pray this prayer. What's wrong with that phrase? The first part. All you have to do. You do. You do this prayer. You say this prayer. Guess what? That's what does it. No. (laughs) Even the contribution of our own faith is a gift from God. And faith, which admits our inability to help ourselves, rests wholly on another. On God for our salvation, it confirms that our works have no power to atone for our own weaknesses. We are justified not by what we do, even a prayer, but by faith alone. In Romans 3.28, Paul clearly writes, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Well, that slide, that takes us right to the next point, as opposed to what? Faith alone is opposed to what? It's important to bring up a seem, this is where I'm going to bring up a seeming contradiction within Scripture at this point. Don't you love those? Ooh, couldn't wait for this one, okay? Protestant readers have always been a bit nervous about the book of James. Martin Luther really didn't like the book of James. The book of James says this, James famously insists that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, verse 24 of chapter 2 in the book of James. We have a problem, don't we? Slight problem. In fact, this is the only place where the phrase faith alone appears in the New Testament. Awesome. It appears to be a denial of the fact that justification is by faith alone. What do we do now? There's more. More than that, there appears to be a direct contradiction between Paul and James here. Paul insists that justification is apart from works, and James seems to be certain that a person is justified by works. Critical commentators have suggested that Paul and James simply contradict one another. And let's move on. Okay, next point. Wait. Evangelical writers have rightly argued, I believe, that James and Paul are using the words faith and justify differently. That is, James is criticizing a faith that a person claims to have. Chapter 1, verse 4. A faith that is, in fact, what he calls 
dead faith. In one verse, he calls it not just dead, he calls it useless. It's useless. Faith alone is James' term for this type of bogus faith. A concept of faith that Paul too would reject, right? Seeing that as he suggests that the faith that justifies or leads to, for example, think about it. Paul talks about it leading to obedience. In Romans 1, Galatians 5 says it leads to love. So similarly, Paul and James are using justify to, meet, to mean different things. Paul is referring to the initial declaration of a sinner's innocence before God, being declared righteous, and we'll talk about that in a minute. James is talking about the ultimate verdict of innocence, pronounced over a person at the last judgment. Make sense? Two different uses of the same thing. Faith without works is dead. A bogus faith, a dead faith, a useless faith, isn't going to show up. It doesn't mean anything. Paul would agree and say, you're right, it's not really what? It's not really faith, is it? It's not true faith. It's not the gift of God that has been given to us of faith. Because it would be real, and it would show up in our actions. It would show up in how we live. John Calvin puts it this way, as Paul contends that we are justified apart from the help of works, so James does not allow those who lack good works to be reckoned or truly called righteous. In other words, you can call yourself a Christian, but if it doesn't show up, we have a problem. Well, be on guard. Be on guard lest you live in a false, bogus faith. When we take God's graciousness for granted, when we say we have faith, saying we have trusted in Christ's sacrifice, and then live in a manner that is the opposite of that of a grateful sinner saved by grace, we're in trouble. Martin Luther himself said this, Faith must, of course, be sincere. It must be a faith that performs good works through love. If faith lacks love, it is not a true faith. Works avail nothing but faith alone, and that without any merit whatsoever avails before God. On the other hand, without fruits, faith serves no purpose. To think if faith justifies without works, let us work nothing. And that despises the grace of God, doesn't it? Well, I'm good. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to live right. I don't have to glorify God. I'm good. Idle faith is not justifying faith. Does that make sense? Faith is a living and restless thing, Luther said. It cannot be inoperative. We are not saved by works. But if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. So, we have sola scriptura, sola fide. The next is sola gratia. Grace, here's our word, alone. We are justified by the grace of God alone. 
What is grace? Grace is the unmerited favor of a holy God on those whom he will save. Human beings have no claim upon God. We cannot go up and go, you owe me something. God owes us nothing except just just punishment. Here's the truth. Now, we're going to get a little theological here. I'm going to give you a couple theological words, okay? The truth here is called imputation. Imputation. It's an imputation of righteousness. Imputed righteousness means that there is a legal decree that God puts forth. And it transfers one person's position for another. Does that make sense? Transfers. The penalty for our sins is taken on by Christ. Our guilt is transferred to Him. This is symbolized in the Old Testament by the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. Actually, in one sense, good works do come into play when you think about it. Now stay with me. Jesus did not just die for us. He lived for us. His whole life was filled to fulfill, lived to fulfill the law of God so that he earns and merits the blessing of God by his perfect righteousness. And because of his perfect life, we are counted righteous. His work, not our own. We are declared righteous because of Jesus. Our desire now should be to live in the reality of that declaration and one day see it fully fully completed in his presence. That'll be great, right? No more of this hassle with sin or is that just me? Again, we look back at Ephesians 2. And it tells us one more time that we bring nothing with us to our redemption. Any good works we perform are not the ground of our status before God, but the result of us having been chosen and gifted with salvation. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your doing. It is a gift of God. Again, let me remind you that grace by definition excludes the slightest hint that human merit contributes to our righteous standing before the Most High and Perfect Creator. And faith, which admits our inability to help ourselves and rests wholly on another for salvation, confirms that our works have no power to atone for our wickedness. One of the Reform writers said, If on the part of God it is grace alone, and if we bring nothing but faith, which strips us of all our commendations, it follows that salvation does not come from us. Isn't that awesome? Salvation doesn't come from us. Our righteous standing before God is imputed to us by grace because of the work of Christ Jesus our Lord. In the Baptist Confession of 1689, we read this. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified and did by the sacrifice of himself and the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due unto them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice 
in their behalf. Their justification is only of free grace that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. Now, just to get you thinking, here's another mind-blowing truth. What is going on in this imputation has by some people been called a, and I'd referred to it, but moved on, might be called a double imputation. Way better than two my pillows for the, for the cost of one. A double imputation. Not only is Christ's righteousness imputed to us, transferred to us, our guilt is transferred and imputed to Christ. He takes on our sin while we take on His righteousness. Again, Calvin has said, Christ stepped in, took the punishment upon Himself and bore the judgment due to sinners. With His own blood, He expiated or made payment for the sins which made them enemies of God and thereby satisfies him. That's the truth of grace alone. Well, as opposed to what? Well, not imputed righteousness, but infused righteousness. Okay, so I want you to use these words in regular conversation this week. Imputed and infused. Okay. Infused righteousness means that at baptism, grace is poured out into the soul of the believer. It's poured into the soul of the believer. The person who receives this grace must then cooperate with and assent to this imputation to the extent that the person actually becomes righteous and maintains that righteousness. And only after that righteousness is inherent in that person will they, they, they be declared righteous in his sight. The challenge is that this grace can be shipwrecked by what's called mortal sin. And when this happens, the sacrament of penance is used to re-justify with a fresh infusion of grace. You could say that infused righteousness is a partnership with God. Well, what do we need to be on guard? We're going to talk about that one more next week, okay? Be on guard lest you, well, you might say, well, cool. Jesus did it. Nothing left for me to do. I'll live the way I want to now. What I do doesn't really matter. Well, I'll say this first. If that is the attitude that you have or that someone you know who says they are a Christian has, then without being, with being as less, least harsh as I possibly can, they are not telling the truth. There is no way, absolutely no way, that one who is forgiven and pl has placed their faith in Christ cannot desire to live out a life that honors Christ and is as a grateful offering to him because of his unmerited favor. It just doesn't make sense, does it? Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. 
Now onto the fourth, sola. Solus Christus. Any guesses? Christ alone. It's right there. Christ alone. Christ as the sole source and cause of our salvation. As the sole mediator between God and man. Here's the truth. While the Roman church holds, and I quote, that there is a purgatory and that the souls there detained are helped by the intercessions of the faithful and that saints are to be venerated and invoked, that their relics are to be venerated, end quote, the reformers taught that salvation was by Christ's work alone. In his Institutes of Christian Religion, John Calvin wrote this, Christ stepped in, took the punishment upon himself and bore the judgment due to sinners. With his own blood, with his own blood, he forgave the sins which made them enemies of God and thereby satisfied him. We look to Christ alone for divine favor and fatherly love. I want us to take just a moment and look at Titus 2. There is so much here, but I want us to see that this passage is about what Jesus has done for us and in us. Titus 2, starting in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, listen, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Are you starting to see things now? These things are excellent and profitable for people. Real quick, what do we see here? He has saved us. He has saved us. Jesus alone in verse 5. He saved us. Period. And the next words say, not by, not because of works done by us. In our righteousness. That didn't save us. Number two, it's because of his mercy. His mercy. Number three, it is not by works done by us. It is the work done by him. Number four, we are justified by his grace alone. His grace alone. And because we have been justified, what are we called here? It's awesome. We are called heirs. Heirs. You actually have a rich father. And you're his heir, if you know Jesus, right? You're his heir. So if somebody says, you know, are you rich? Absolutely. Just haven't seen it all yet. We are heirs, and we, have, we are heirs of eternal life. The greatest gift he's given us, the greatest rich, riches he has given us is of our eternal life. And number six, those who have believed, those who have believed will be devoted to good works. You see it again? You say, he seems to be repeating himself in me. I seem to be repeating myself? Yes, because do you see that all these tie together? You cannot have one without the other. 
Well, that's what I would say the truth is, as opposed to what? Well, again, let's glance back at Titus 3. We cannot trust in our works, it said. And I would contend that neither, listen carefully, I would contend that neither evangelicals nor Catholics would say that they trust in their own works. And I'll explain that more next week. Let me just say this now. We must... We also must be confident that Christ's work and his work on the cross alone justifies us before God. This brings up a question in my mind. And this, this, is, a, this is a sticking point in this debate, okay? Is salvation a process or a one-time event? Okay? So you could ask, any, you know, an evangelical, you could ask a Catholic, are you saved through Christ alone? Everyone would say yes. Okay? The question is, is it a process or is it an event? And my answer to that is yes. We will discuss that more next week, but for now, we're going to say it this way. Think of salvation this way. We have been saved, okay? Salvation, we have been saved, justified and made righteous before God. We are declared righteous. Now, write that phrase down because that's going to be very important. We are declared righteous. We have been saved, but we are also being saved. We are being sanctified and becoming more like Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We are being made righteous. We've been declared righteous. We're also being made righteous. And we will be saved. Glorified before God when we are finally and completely in His presence. We will be fully and finally righteous. We have been saved. We are being saved. And we will be saved. What do we do here? Be on guard. And I would challenge you to be on guard lest you waste your life by not living in constant graceful, gratefulness for Christ's grace and work in you. For the Christ follower, it's supposed to be a privilege to live fully in our righteousness. It is a privilege to live fully in our declared righteousness before Christ and as he works in our lives and continues to make us righteous, not a saving righteousness, a, a sanctifying righteousness or a being made holy, we can waste our life in not living in gratefulness to that. Philippians 1.20 says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that the full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death the apostle Paul says I want Christ to be honored in my body is he saying for the purpose of me becoming being saved of being righteous no it is because I have been declared righteous that I want Christ to be glorified in my body and honored in my body our works and efforts are because of Christ's grace Toward us, not in order to obtain or maintain Christ's grace. 1 Peter 1 7 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The genuineness of our faith is tested. And as I said earlier, there is a bogus faith that is not grounded in Christ's work alone. Again, some more on that next week. We make our way to the fifth sola. Sola Dio Gloria. To the glory of God alone. Solo Deo Gloria. God is sovereign, and all of our life is to be lived for His glory. His glory. The truth is that each of these great solas is summed up in this fifth Reformation motto. It is what the Apostle Paul expressed in Romans eleven thirty six when he wrote, To Him be the glory forever. Amen. These words follow naturally from the preceding words right before them that said, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Since it's because all things really are from God and to God that we say to God be the glory. It is God and God alone who secures our salvation and thus our right standing with Him. It's Titus 3 again. He saves us. It is His gift to us. It is for His glory as opposed to what? Well, here's where we go with this one. This isn't theological, this is just us sometimes. It's about me. It's not about him, it's about me. It's about me, it's about our church, it's about something else I deem to be important. If anything else in our life takes precedent over God and God alone, then we are idol worshipers. We are placing faith in something other than Christ alone and our desires for some other glory than that of God. It's been said that an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. See, when it's not about God alone... We become idol worshipers. Tim Keller has said our heart is an idol factory. So beware. Lest you put your faith in and give glory to or trust to anyone or anything other than God. Here's a quick test that I want us to finish with to see if maybe, just maybe, something else has taken the spot of God. Life only, my life only has meaning and I only have worth if, number one, I have power and influence over others. If I am loved and respected by fill in the blank. If I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life. Number four, if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of Life only has meaning. I only have worth if, number five, people are dependent on me and need me. Number six, if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe. Number seven, if I am completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone. Life will only have meaning. I will only have worth if, number eight, I am highly productive and getting a lot done. <laughs> 
gone to meddling. Number nine, if I am recognized for my accomplishments and I am excelling in my work. Number ten, if I have a certain level of wealth and financial freedom and nice possessions. Number eleven, if I'm adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplish in its activities. My life has meaning. I will have worth if number ten, I... Number 11, I am at number 12, I'm sorry. This one person in my life, if there's that one person in my life, and I'm happy to be there, they're happy with me. If I feel I'm totally independent of organized religion and I'm living in a self-made morality, if my race and culture is ascendant and recognized as superior, Hmm, I wonder if we saw that on the news today. Life will have meaning. I will only have worth if a particular social grouping or professional grouping or other groups lets me in. If my children and, or my parents are happy and happy with me. If Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. My life will have meaning and I'll have worth if I am hurting or in a problem. Only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with the guilt. If my political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence or power. Life has meaning. And I only have worth if I have a particular kind of look or body image. So in conclusion, I want to ask you, simple two-part question. Today, as you sit here listening, would you describe your faith as alone or and? Do you stand firm in these alones or have you added to them? I believe the Bible is my sole authority and I believe that I'm saved by grace through faith and I'm putting my trust in Christ and I believe these are things that God would ask of us. Are you, alone, are you an alone believer or an and believer? This is critical. It does make a difference. As the old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand.